This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Jason Steinauer, author of History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Uh, Sure. So my name is Jason Steinhauer. As mentioned, I am what's called a public historian. So in the world of history, we are kind of subdivided into two major camps, academic history and public history. Academic history is kind of self-evident. It's professors, whether it be at universities or colleges. Public historians operate in places like museums, archives, libraries, government agencies. And while we're all historians for public history, we think really critically and deeply about how historical information gets communicated to public audiences. And so this is something I've been fascinated with my entire career. I've worked in museums. I've worked in libraries. I've worked in archives. I've worked at the Library of Congress. For seven years, I was the founding director of something called the LePage Center for History in the Public Interest. I'm now a global fellow at the Wilson Center. But throughout that time, it became obvious to me that so much now of history communication and historical education and learning is happening on the web. And so then the question became, well, what are the consequences of that? What does it mean to have all of this information about history online and so many people consuming history online every day in their news feeds. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there was a big story to tell here that hadn't been told in a book. And so the end product is the book that we're talking about today, History Disrupted. Tell the audience about the e-history. What does this mean and the implications of e-history? So in the book, I coin on the very first page a a new phrase, which I've called e-history. So in the same way that we have commerce and e-commerce, in the same way that we have books and e-books, 
I am suggesting or arguing in this book that we have now something called e-history. And using commerce is actually a good example to think about this. So um, commercial transactions that happen online that we call e-commerce, they are also considered commerce. But the fact that they happen online and that we call them e-commerce is because one, they take place on a dirt on a digital setting. But two, there are also certain mechanics behind the scenes that enable those transactions to happen, right? You have to have Stripe or you have to have some other payment processor. You have to have a front end where people can enter information, their credit card information that has to be sent to a location behind the scenes and the transaction has to be processed. So all the mechanics are what part are part of what make e-commerce possible. So that's a good analogy for e-history. E-history is both the place that the transaction happens, so electronic communication of history across social media channels, but also the mechanics behind the scenes that make e-history possible. And those mechanics are actually a huge aspect of the book. And uh, the chapters in the book actually talk about different mechanics that make e-history visible to us online. So examples of e-history include Wikipedia pages or Twitter feeds or uh, Facebook posts, but they share a commonality. They share a commonality about where they occur, and they also share a commonality in that there are uh, common mechanics behind the scenes that make e-history possible. And the book goes into what those mechanics are. You talked about social media and history education. Can you give us some examples as to what's occurring in the schools? Well, one thing I found when I was researching this book and talking to teachers is that students are now coming into schools with a lot of information about history and the past that they have consumed online. So one of the questions and challenges that teachers are facing from the research and interviews that I did is how do you square what students, particularly you know, middle and high school students, might be learning about the past on platforms like TikTok or Instagram uh, versus what they learn in history class in school? And of course, sometimes those two things don't line up, right? Because there's lots of information about history on social media platforms, not all of which is accurate or factual or aligns with current scholarship. So one of the questions that I keep getting from teachers is, you know, what do we do about this? How do we, how do we handle this? And uh, for me, my advice has been use social media and the e-history that students are finding on social media as a primary source. In other words, think about it as a source to be analyzed and critiqued and to explore what that e-history is doing, why it's there, who's creating it, what agendas are operating behind the scenes. And that gets students to be more media savvy, critical thinkers about the information that they're seeing online. And that's a big part of why I wrote this book. I want people to ask questions about the history that they're seeing online, the e-history that they're encountering every day, and ask questions about it. Ask who created it and why. Why am I seeing this now in my newsfeed? Why is this showing up as opposed to other e-history information that I could be seeing? And how does this align with what historians currently think about a particular topic? I think if we can teach some of those media literacy skills, then that will help teachers and students in the classroom. Agendas and history. 
Can you make history say what you want it to say? Well, certainly when anyone tries to sit down and write something about the past, one has to look at the sources, look at the evidence, and try to make a honest interpretation or an honest accounting of what that evidence tells you. I think one of the challenges that we have is that there are a lot of actors out there who are not honest in their interpretations of history. So to your question and to your point, they are warping the historical record or misinterpreting it in a way that advances their particular agenda, whether it be a political agenda or a commercial agenda, as opposed to an honest interpretation of what the evidence and the sources tell us about the past. And of course, in the United States, probably a quintessential example of that is the Civil War. And the evidence tells us very cleanly, uh, very clearly and plainly that this principal cause of the Civil War was slavery. But there are actors out there, uh, political actors, commercial actors, actors with variety of different agendas who are, have created a, a dishonest interpretation of that evidence to suggest that slavery was not the central cause of the U.S. Civil War. And so for historians, that's a very frustrating and discouraging development that you have people who are not being honest in their interpretation of the past, but then are presenting their information online in e-history forms with the agenda behind it to try to uh, deceive, uh, spread disinformation, or change people's viewpoints in order to achieve a particular political objective. And that's one of the great challenges that faces the history profession in the 21st century, and again, is one of the reasons why I wrote this book. You know, you talked about YouTube. Who are the people that seek information from YouTube on specific issues? Give us some examples. Oh, well, YouTube is viewed by millions and millions of people around the world every single minute of every single day. So uh, I don't know if there's a particular type or person. Uh, it's YouTube is uh, this incredible repository of video content that has been created uh, over the past, whatever, 15, 20 years, however long it's been. I don't know exactly off the top of my head when YouTube came online. Um and, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. You, you might assume perhaps that YouTube is for a younger generation and only uh, students or college students are gravitating towards YouTube, but uh, that's not the case. There's people of all ages and all backgrounds who go to YouTube and look to YouTube for information. There are major media companies like the New York Times and the BBC who leverage YouTube. There are independent media entities that leverage YouTube. Some of the most established journalists are on YouTube and some of the most amateur uh, creators are also on YouTube. It's, yeah, yeah there's, there's not one type of person um, who uses it, which is also why it's important for people who do use it to analyze and critically assess the information that they find on there, including history. There are millions and millions of history videos on YouTube. And some of them are made by professional historians, and some of them are made by journalists, and some of them are made by Russia Today or disinformation outlets. And they all sort of rest side by side in the feed and on the YouTube uh, landing pages. And so this is why we need 
a better understanding of why and how certain information reaches our eyes and what agendas are behind them so that we can better critically assess this information, regardless of who you are, how old you are, what your background is, uh, where you live. And so I hope that's one outcome that will come from this book is that people will have a few more tools in their toolkit to decipher information on platforms like YouTube and be able to assess whether or not it's a e-history content that they should uh, believe or find credible. I think you're so right about that because we are now becoming more a listening culture rather than a reading culture. So that's why I was asking you about students and people going to YouTube to find information instead of reading. Now, you, you talked about the expert-centric perspective. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that it's actually quite difficult to do um, history, to transpose professional history into the social web because professional history and the social web actually at their core have a very fundamental different set of values embedded within them. Professional history is an expert-centric profession. And what I mean by that is that experts are perceived in the professional discipline of history to be at the center of communicative power. If you think about a classroom, the professor is at the front of the class and the students are listening. So the professor has the power to shape the conversation, to create the syllabus, to dictate what grades the students get. If you go to a museum, the curators create the show and write the exhibit labels and the visitors are the ones who go through the show and are supposed to learn from the experts. If you go to a national park and you encounter a historian or a ranger there, same thing. The historian or the ranger is the expert and the visitor is expected to learn from the expert. But the web doesn't really work like that. The web is set up to empower users, uh, whether they be experts or not. It is user-centric. Users can contribute. Users can speak. Users can dictate how their experience goes. And you know, I argue in the book that that actually creates uh, a tension between professional history and the social web. And so I argue in the book that the e-history online that is more expert-centric struggles to achieve visibility and influence, whereas the e-history online that is user-centric, that puts the user in control, that gives the user options, that is centered around a user experience, has a greater chance of becoming visible and influential. And so the consequences of that are that, you know, history education and history pedagogy then probably have to become more user-centric, not just online, but everywhere, classrooms, museums, government institutions, in order to appeal or conform to the tastes and preferences of generations that have been brought up with the web. And that's a very profound thing because it would entail radically redesigning how history education works in the United States. But I think it's a necessary thing based on the research that I've done and the book that I've written. Uh, it's one of the things that I feel like uh, we can work on through the History Communication Institute, which is my new venture that I'm in the process of setting up, thinking about how to create historical experiences that are user-centric in nature. Now, you also talked about this crowdsourcing of history. Tell the audience about that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so as mentioned, 
the book in the initial chapters sort of sets up this concept of e-history and this clash of expert-centric versus user-centric. And then the next chapters of the book talk about the various mechanisms by which historical information becomes visible online. And one of those mechanisms is crowdsourcing. So basically, on a platform like Wikipedia or Reddit or Quora or Ask Amazon or Amazon Answers, I think is actually what it's called, the way information gets raised to the top of the feed is through crowdsourcing mechanisms. So one person contributes, then another person contributes, then another person contributes, and eventually that fills out the entry or the answer or raises the information to the top of the page so that you're more likely to see it. So the crowdsourced past is one mechanism by which information about the past or e-history about the past becomes visible to us online. And crowdsourcing is interesting because as I write about in the book and as I learned when researching this book, crowdsourcing can make some information about the past visible to us, but it can also make some information about the past invisible to us. And there's an example that I use in the book about a professor who tried to update his Wikipedia, a Wikipedia entry with some information that he had uncovered in the Library of Congress. And the crowd actually prevented him from updating that information. And so that's an instance where information that is evidence-based and um, you know would be beneficial for people to know was prevented from being on this Wikipedia page and reaching potentially thousands, if not millions of people by the crowd. And so I think it's important for us to think about how these various mechanics of the social web both enable some information to be visible and also prevent some information from ever being seen. And the crowdsource pass is just one of those mechanisms. There are other mechanisms as well that I talk about in the book. Now, one example gave us about how history is changing was the Snowzilla. Can you tell the audience that story? Yeah, so this is in that same chapter about uh, the crowdsourced past. And uh, I wanted to find case studies and examples throughout the book that would illustrate some of these perhaps more abstract concepts that I write about. And so um, one thing that I thought was kind of interesting and amusing was this Wikipedia entry for what was called Snowzilla, which uh, was a, a term used to describe a a big snowstorm that happened on the eastern coast of the United States in January of 2016. And what I thought was interesting about this was because this storm was sort of tracking uh, from west to east and uh, meteorologists and newscasters were projecting that this storm was going to be a big one even before it hit, people started creating a Wikipedia entry about this storm even before the storm had arrived. So in other words, people were writing a history of an event before the event had even occurred, which I thought was really fascinating. And, you know, some people talk about journalism as being the first draft of history. Well, it seemed to me when writing this book that actually Wikipedia and some of these other sites have sort of superseded that in some ways, right? It's a sort of a new version of the first draft of history because essentially on these Wikipedia pages, you have people so eager to contribute and the crowd so eager to get uh, information out there about a particular event that appears like it might be important 
that they are actually starting to write a history of something before it even happens. And so, um, you know, I haven't quite fully wrapped my mind around what this means for us, but I think it's something to be aware of, right? When you go to Wikipedia, it's possible that the information that is there was written by people even before the event itself happened. And so how reliable can it be if it was <laughs> written before something even occurred? Again, I think that's just an important question for us to ask ourselves when we encounter e-history online. Now, you talked about this Time Hop app, how content is online and it's supplied by the individual. That's, again, something that people need to be aware of. Yeah. So the next chapter after the crowdsource pass is a chapter that I called Nostalgia on Demand. And that chapter largely maps to Facebook, but there are other instances of Nostalgia on Demand on other platforms. And basically the argument in that chapter is as the social web evolved and as platforms like Facebook evolved, apps evolved along with them that would surface moments from the past into your newsfeed that would give you a quick dose of nostalgia. And we're all familiar with these, right? These sort of on this day posts or the memories that pop up in Facebook. If you use Facebook, you know, you might get in your feed uh, a picture from seven years ago that you posted or uh, a place that you went to seven years ago that you checked in at. And it will ask you if you want to reshare it in your feed or if you want to reconnect with the people. It's just like a little microdose of nostalgia. And the app that really personified this was an app called TimeHop which for a couple of years dominated Facebook and raised a lot of money to kind of offer this nostalgia on demand service. And what was interesting about that is again, it's a very user centric app because it's not asking an expert to analyze with some scholarly interpretation an episode from the past. It's taking your own data and reflecting it back to you as a way to generate a fleeting moment of nostalgia and get you to click. And by clicking, that's how they generate revenue and, and generate uh, more transactions. And so this is a genre of e-history that really takes off in the 2010s, 2011s, 2012s. And you can see it everywhere now on the web, whether it be on this day posts or this day in history posts, these little micro doses of nostalgia. I argue in the book that these don't really teach us anything about history. What they are is that they're just tricks that are employed by various actors, whether it be professional historians or whether it be a company like TomHop, to get you to click on something, right? And so that's ultimately what a lot of e-history ends up being. It's not really history education. It's a way to get you to click on something, whether it be to click on a time hop, time hop post or to click on a link or to click on a photograph or engage with a tweet. And this, again, gets back to this question of e-history in the same way that e-commerce is always a transaction. I argue in the book that e-history is also always a transaction. And so on-demand nostalgia is one way that you get people to partake in that transaction. 2016, historians join Twitter. How did they benefit from Twitter? Ah, this is a great question. So I'm actually thinking about writing something about this in my newsletter this week because of the Elon Musk news uh, with the purchase of Twitter. Twitter is such a complex, fascinating place, also a terrifying place, I might add. 
Um, when I thought about Twitter and the e-history that happens there, Twitter happens to be a platform where professional historians spend a lot of time. And part of that, it turned out, was because of the presidential election of 2016 and the rise of candidate-turned-president Donald Trump. Uh, Trump is was sort of the antithesis of everything that professional history envisions itself to be. And so uh, when Trump used Twitter successfully to ascend to political office, it was interesting to see how progressive activists and scholars and historians then responded by using Twitter as ways to push back against him. And so it turned out that 2015, 2016, and 2017 were actually the, the years that the most historians joined Twitter and started speaking out against uh, President Trump and his worldview. And uh, that wasn't a coincidence that they joined in large numbers during that time and started being more active on the platform. You know, whether Twitter, Twitter has been good for professional history or not, I think is sort of an open question, which I will talk more about in my newsletter. By the way, my newsletter is jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. If people want to sign up for it, I encourage you to do so. That helps support me and my work. Uh, I think Twitter has been good for a few professional historians. So professional historians like Joanne Freeman, Kevin Cruz, Heather Cox Richardson, uh, they have done very well on Twitter. What's interesting about them is that they are also they are also tenured professors at elite Northeastern universities, Princeton, Yale, Boston University. And so I think there's a correlation there that shouldn't be overlooked. In other words, uh, historians who already have some built-in privileges and built-in credibility because of the institutions that they teach at were able to use Twitter during the Trump administration as a platform to speak out against his policies and advocate for their particular views and their particular scholarship. But on the whole, the picture gets a lot cloudier when you start to take into account other historians in other places. And in fact, based on some of the research I've done, the median average Twitter followers for a professional historian is somewhere around 750 followers, which is not a lot. So I think Twitter has been effective for a particular group of academic historians at elite institutions, but I think it's been less effective for the wide range of historians across the profession. And this is something that I will talk more about in my newsletter and I talk a little bit about in the book. Now, I want to talk about the blockchain because I think that's going to impact history a lot. Um, how will this impact the university press? Tell us more. Yeah. So at the end of the book, I have a chapter where I sort of speculate a little bit about new technologies coming down the pipe and what effect they may have on history and the history profession. Blockchain technology, I think, will have a lot of applications that are still not 100% clear to us. Basically, a blockchain is a public ledger. It's a public record of transactions. And so there have been all kinds of experiments with, for example, publishing on the blockchain, to your point. And whether or not uh, scholars or historians in the future could publish their work directly to a blockchain, either in the form of an NFT or other type of token, tokenized knowledge, in a way that would bypass 
in academic press and allow a scholar or an author to keep more of his or her earnings. So for example, you know, my book is with an academic press. I get a very small percentage of the royalties. The press gets the largest amount of money when people buy the books. But in the same way that self-publishing potentially allows me to keep more of the earnings and revenue, what if there was a way to turn every page of my book into an NFT, mint it on a blockchain, and then sell individual pages in a way where I could keep more of the earnings as opposed to having most of the earnings be siphoned off by the academic publisher. A lot of this stuff is still very experimental and it's no guarantee that it will work because there's also cultural and social factors that are involved here. Uh, Another potential use of the blockchain could be for museums. Uh, Museum spend a lot of money on information management systems to archive their collections. But what if there was a way to use the blockchain to um, to put all that data on a chain and then make that data available to researchers and museum visitors in a way that's far more accessible than many museum websites currently are? So I think the ramifications of all this technology are, it's still kind of early, but there are already experiments happening in these spaces. And the reason that the book is called History Disrupted is that these technologies are continuing to be very disruptive to the way that professional history has operated for the previous 100 years. And some of that disruption is good. It'll force institutions and universities and museums to be more innovative and more experimental. But some of it also could be very harmful to the profession in terms of eliminating jobs, uh, less job security, or even people valuing professional history less. And that's one of the concerns that I have with all these technologies. And one of the conclusions that I come to in the book is that these technologies might actually have such a disruptive effect on professional history that professional history could conceivably one day cease to exist. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you're working on? Well, first of all, thank you so much for your interest in the book and for reading the book and for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to be part of the New Books Network podcast series. Um, Two things that I'm working on right now. One, my Substack newsletter, growing that out so I can share more of this research and these ideas, jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. And the second thing uh, is with colleagues, I'm building something called the History Communication Institute. And the HCI is going to be a space where we can have more conversation about all these disruptive changes to the history profession, as well as work with media producers, YouTube creators, podcast hosts, journalists, museums, governments, history institutions on how to communicate history in ways that are better suited for the web that we have and the web that we are moving into. And so I'm really excited about that. More about that will be in my Substack newsletter. And hopefully the HCI will also be funded by cryptocurrency so that we'll be able to do programs and pay historians and others to be involved using crypto as well as take payments in crypto. So it's an exciting time. Please stay in touch. And once again, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being on the show.